Welcome to Rethinking Humanity Interviews. I'm Lacey Delane. Hi, I'm Sonia Lorea. And we are so excited to be here today. It's Friday, March the 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We have Amelia Pang, the author of Made in China. We are so excited about this. This we woman are pumped. is a baller. <laughs> you know, anybody who knows me, if I say you're a baller, that means I really think you're cool. <laughs> right, Sonia? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How are you, Sonia? Are you ready for this? I am ready. I've been ready. I'm super excited that we have Amelia with us today. Um, it's going to be awesome. What were your, quickly, because we want to bring her in, what were your initial or your general thoughts on, on the book? Incredible, incredible. Um, I had read the, uh, in the New York Times, sort of the review, and mm -hmm. I was like, I've got to get this book. I need to read it. This is exactly what we need on our podcast, uh, themes that we're yeah. talking about. And it's just, I'm just telling everybody, go out and get it. Made in China. Yeah, China. it's yeah. groundbreaking. I'll, I'll say this. I think, first of all, after a certain point, I just couldn't put the book down. I just couldn't stop reading it. And some of it was really hard to read because of the reality of what's going on here in, in China with this whole situation. But I didn't, there's a lot that I didn't realize about this, the industry. And mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that the story of Sunli, who we'll, I'm sure, talk about here shortly, really humanized this whole thing and was a brilliant part of this book. So it's it feels kind of like a narrative in a way, but it's mm -hmm. not. It's really well written, of course. All right, so let's stop talking about her and let's just bring her in. <laughs> Come on in. We'd like to introduce Amelia Pang. <laughs> yes. Um let me let everybody know that Amelia is an award-winning investigative journalist of Uyghur and Chinese descent. Her work has been published in the New Republic, Mother Jones, and the New York Times Sunday Review, among other publications. She is currently an editor at EdTech Magazine. She is the author of Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. It was shortlisted for the 2019 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award, co-administered by Columbia Journalism School and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. Welcome, Amelia, to our podcast. Thank you so much, Sonia and Lacey. I'm pretty excited to be on here. Yay, we're glad to have you. I, I got super excited and then brought you in before <laughs> before Sonia read her introduction. So <laughs> How are you today, Amelia? You're outside of DC, I believe, is that correct? Yep, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm doing well, how are you guys? We're awesome. We're really excited. How's the weather in DC today? Um, it's pre it's been pretty warm lately. Um, yeah. The other side of climate change, I guess we have a lot of drastic weather changes. No, for sure, definitely here as well, one hundred percent. Well, I mean, I'm kind of not complaining because I like the warm weather, but it's definitely not, you not know, normal. definitely unseasonable. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Tell us about your shirt first, too, because I'm not sure I pronounced you the title Uyghur right tell us about yes. Google Uyghur. Um, Google Uyghur was one of the earlier uh, movements to try to raise awareness to the re-education re camps that are detaining millions of Uyghurs at the moment and forcing them to do labor uh, a lot of the times. Mm. So on that note will you tell the those folks who are watching and listening who have not read your book can you give kind of like an executive summary of what you uncovered in your work and, and what you wrote about. Sure. Uh, well, my book starts 
uh, with this story that took place in 2012 when an American woman named Julie Keith, uh, she's just this kind of ordinary consumer. She's a mother of two. She's planning a Halloween party for one of her kids. And she's just looking for decorations to plan the party um, with. And uh, she remembers that she has this decoration that's been sitting in her storage shed for two years because it was just one of those things that somebody had got her because there was it was so cheap you couldn't um mm. not get it but you also nobody had a real need for it so it just sat in storage for two years um before she finally opened it and when she, as she's pulling out these decorative gravestones she was horrified to find an sos letter written by the political prisoner in China who had made and packaged this very product under very torturous conditions. So I wanted to explore in my book the, you know, his story, how he landed in that camp um, and what happened to him in the end, but also uh, more importantly, what were the factors? Um, what were uh, just more about the corporate complicity, like that angle, what were the problems in our supply chain and the holes in the way that a lot of companies audit their Chinese factories? All the different factors that led to making it really, really easy for something that was manufactured in a labor camp in Liaoning, China, to end up selling at a Kmart in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, you know, the supply chain thing is something Sonia and I were discussing last night. And I wonder, uh, before we get too far into this, if you could clarify how that works. How does it go from the labor camp and ultimately end up at a Kmart? Yes, it's a pretty complex process where it goes through many different um, people's hands. A lot of third party um, companies and manufacturers will kind of handle it before it actually lands in a, a Kmart. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a part of the excuse that a lot of corporations use. They say, oh, uh, we can only track our su supply chain up to a certain point or we conduct audits up to a certain point and we don't know if there was forced labor at some other point that we're not tracking. Um, but my book just goes into more detail about why that answer isn't good enough and why how we as consumers can um, hold our corporations more accountable. Mm -hmm. um, but what that, what that process usually, how it happens is... Um, you see a company like H&M or Kmart or Walmart, any of them, if they, um, let's say they'll place an order to an official supplier, some, uh, a one with typically decent working conditions or should be decent working conditions. They should have people uh, coming in to check and inspect the factories. Um, and these audits were typically inspect for things like um, the quality of the products, the quality of the equipment. Um, if they're paying a little more for the audit, they might check to see more details about the workers' rights, uh, the official employees of the factory. Um, but a lot of these audits can't detect the kind of hidden subcontracting that happens. Um, because, you know, rarely do you have a factory that actually manufactures everything from scratch, from raw materials to the final product. Um, usually there's a lot of part, moving parts that are subcontracted to various factories. And usually the, the our brands are tracking a lot of those. Um, you have first tier suppliers, second tier suppliers, and they are um, they do have a list of all the different places. And they do have control over 
where their factories are subcontracting to to make sure um, it's also good good working conditions and good products um, being made in those subcontractors. Um, but there's also a lot of illegal or what's, a, what's called unauthorized subcontracting that happens. Um, and a lot of um, brands will say, oh, well, it's hard for us to detect when that happens, when they're not actually subcontracting where they say they're subcontracting to. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it, it is possible for them to find out this information. But what, but when that happens, and usually that's all, a lot of times that is connected to um, us as consumers and the way that we buy. Mm-hmm. Um, when our companies demand extremely, extremely low prices, because consumers like us love to pay extremely low prices um, for these factories, um, and they cannot realistically have all the parts made at an authorized subcontractor's place. Mm-hmm. Um, then they have to outsource work to some really shady places, whether it's just factories with terrible, terrible working conditions or um, a lot of times actual labor camps where detainees like political prisoners are held there under torturous conditions and they must manufacture, do manufacturing work for 20 hours a day. Um, And, you know, these are all all of the these kinds of detention centers in China essentially do manufacturing work and any factory could at any point subcontract work to them. Yeah, I'm glad that you uh, explained that because Lacey and I were talking about it and it's definitely more complex than what one thinks of all the, you know, places that this, you know, the materials are going that you can't, it's hard to determine where this is coming from. What I love about this book is how you weave in the story of Sun Li. And it really does humanize um, this story in the sense that you learn about him, you know, from his youth and then his education and how he gets involved to be in one of these camps. If you could explain, I thought it was really fascinating, even though he was educated and he had an opportunity to be an engineer, he chose to use his voice. And one of the, you can clarify this for me, but he became a follower of Falun Gong. Is that correct? And if you could tell our listeners what that is and that process of how he got there. Yes, um, uh, Falun Gong is this religious group that was banned in China in 1999. Um, And since then they've taken on like a lot of some really interesting political activism, like for pro-democracy work. Um, And, you know, a lot of people think they were banned because more so because they just have this unique ability to organize these kinds of mass protests and other kinds of dissident activities that um, that is difficult to organize in China and extremely dangerous to organize in China. And that is a threat to authoritarian regimes like the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. So they are one of the groups that are being targeted in these uh, labor camps and detention centers. Um, so Sunyi, uh, was this really interesting guy that I, I really wanted, I just really wanted to humanize the people in these camps to show um, what were the things that made them tick and what were the things about them that were maybe some more similar to you and I, you know, this, he was just this human being in this labor camp and it could have been any one of us in some sense. Yeah. He had grown up in kind of a rural area, um, but he was really, really intelligent and managed to um, 
get into uh, a college that he wanted to go to and get a scholarship. And he um, he went to college during the 80s when uh, there was China was opening up for the first time and he was interested in all these Western ideas. Like he was, he loved reading Hegel and he was just such mm -hmm. a curious minded individual and um, that led him. And it was just so unfortunate that he had, he was this person with all this potential mm -hmm. and then he just ended up in a labor camp uh, working 20 hours a day. Um, and just the nonstop repetitive movements of, of the job and, and, and the, um, it just, it really kind of slowly reduced him from this really, this person with this rich inner world to this, a person that was almost half dead zombie-like, just this mechanism doing repetitive motions, mm. um, manufacturing cheap goods for Kmart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was it's, it was heartbreaking to read how he was treated. Um, I, it was it was so hard to read it, and for me, I've been reading it. I like to read at night, and so it it didn't help me go to sleep. For yeah. sure. But no, I mean it's so it is just so sad what he went through, and I think you did an excellent job of humanizing him um, and making. I think it what what's so powerful about how you humanized him is really giving the impact of what's actually happening, what's going on. Um, I mean, we've I fell in love with him, you know, like I fell in love with him and wanted I was like cheering for him, and then I'm like, dude, you got a great wife, man, it's so hard. What's going? On? What's gonna happen? Don't don't you know? I'm hoping he gets out. You know all these things. So, it, can you talk a little bit about the abuse? the abusive side and share a little bit more about really what these folks are facing for the, the purpose of me and you being able to buy something for $2 instead of five, basically. Uh, oh, and, and before I, I just want to make a comment and Amelia can expand on it. What I didn't realize is the um, number of people in the camps that they represent all different, you know, religions, or if you are against the government or, you're a journalist. I mean, there, there's quite a variety of individuals that they claim are political prisoners. Right. Yes, yes. There's so many different groups. Um, there's a lot of the women's rights activists uh, in China are also taking a pro-democracy uh, stand and they're being targeted. Um, a lot of the Hong Kong activists are at high risk of being ending up in these types of labor camps. Um, um, a lot of these detainees are not just religious dissidents, but also pro-democracy activists, um, uh, the civil rights lawyers that stand up for these people. Um, mm. The lawyer that got Sunni out of the camp uh, actually ended up getting imprisoned and mm -hmm. um, this day is still under house arrest. Um, wow. So it's just comes at such a high cost, this fight for democracy in China. Um, and there's also a lot of ethnic groups in these detention centers, including largely the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. And, and all, they, a lot of these different detention centers have different names, but they're all, for the most part, um, doing manufacturing work. Mm. Um, 
And I'm sorry, what was your first question, Lacey? Yeah, it's okay. It was just to speak to the conditions for those in these re-education camps and particularly the abusive side of that. Don't leave that out as, as what I'm hoping you'll, you'll do. Yes. So a lot of these camps, they are subsidized by the Chinese government because it's really useful tools for the Chinese government to control uh, political dissent. So there's a heavy emphasis on um, political re-education, which is really brainwashing um, a lot of torture sessions for the political dissidents. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these facilities were originally based off of Soviet gulags. Um, so the torture there is pretty horrific. Mm -hmm. um, people are hung, uh, people are brutally electrocuted. It's um, uh, and unfortunately for the women, sexual violence is very, very prevalent. Um, and we're, we're learning about now about the Uyghur camps. It's that the, the, the level of sexual violence is, has risen significantly in recent years in these types mm -hmm. of camps. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really time for consumers like us to stand up and say, we are not comfortable having our products made in a facility where the workers are forced laborers um, who are, when they're not, manufacturing our cheap goods, they're being raped. You know, this just, we need to start having those associations with these products. Mm -hmm. A hundred percent. How do you think we can start doing that? I think you speak to that in the book a little bit. What's, what would you say is the most powerful way we can start to send that message? I think the next time, I, because it's not just the cheap brands uh, that are, uh, profiting off of this type of free labor. Um, it's really, I, I don't know if there's any brand out there that we could safely say has no forced labor product at any point enter their supply chain. No brand, they, no brand. No brand, because just the way that most of our companies um, are auditing their Chinese or overseas suppliers is so weak mm -hmm. that a lot of these audits just simply cannot detect unauthorized subcontracting to labor camps. We wow. really need um, a movement to create sustainability 2.0. We, we need to start asking all of the companies that we shop from. Um, next time you go shopping online at your favorite brand's website, just take a moment and look at their sustainability page and see if it says a few key things that it should say that more brands should start saying. Um, and my book does go into detail, what are the things you should look for on those pages? Um, but one of them being, are they still sourcing from Xinjiang? Um, because that's one region that we're recently finding out about just how high the, the, the forced labor there is. It's, it, the risk for forced labor is so high that, and, and the sec security there is so tight that, um, our companies cannot go and even audit, do a, do a cursory audit of those factories to ensure that um, it wasn't made under forced labor conditions. Maybe a few years ago they could, but now the situation is it has um, it, it's changed entirely. It's a heavily militarized area um, um, where the, the, the entire region is essentially open air prison. Um, so, so that's one thing that we need to start asking all of our companies to start revealing um, on their transparency and their sustainability pages. 
um, where are you sourcing from? Are any of your factories sourcing from Xinjiang? And if so, are you willing to, to drop them? Right. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating in the book how you talk about the cognitive dissonance we have as consumers, how we're making this, these decisions. And what's really scary, uh, as you bring up now, is now we have this, the internet that you can order something immediately and have that delivered tomorrow, which is, of course, pushes that demand. And you bring up a point that there's these razor thin margins that the companies are trying to meet. So it's this consumer demand that is, um, that is pushing this. Uh, which I think people need to be educated of how our consumption is, you know, our consumption is creating these problems. Um, and I know you bring up also consumer strikes. Uh, also, I think having information maybe of what, like you're saying, as far as checking the responsibility, the social responsibility of these companies. And, and you also talked about these cottage industries that are created, which is really unbelievable just to, I guess, do, is it fake audits or? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was shocking to me. I was like, wow. I mean, the links that they're going to, to continue to be able to do this, you know, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The, a lot of these Chinese factories, they, they, they hire people to, um, hire people who normally do audits or who are from the auditing industry to um, be their consultant uh, and advise them on how they could get past uh, audits without actually meeting the standards. There's a lot of ways for them to do that, including creating fake timesheets um, uh, that are unevenly stamped so it looks real um, and, and even software that can create uh, fake digital timesheets. It's, it's really quite a the level of detail that they've uh, invested in in these fake audits is it's, it's really hard for even a good auditor to tell what's real or or not um but i think we need to step back and talk about why are chinese factories doing this what are the factors compelling them to do this and a lot of times it's because these factories cannot realistically make the products um, for the standards that we tell them we care about according to those standards that we say we care about and for the prices that we give them to, to, to make the products. It's just it's just not aligned. A lot of our companies are kind of setting up their factories to fail uh, these standard tests. And um, unfortunately, if they want to keep the contract with a big major global brand, then they have to resort to cheating. Um, and so I think we as and consumers need to start asking our companies, can you reveal if you're actually, if you say, if don't, don't just use the word transparency or sustainability as a marketing buzzword to make you more money. Um, if you are going to say you're being transparent and you're being sustainable, can you reveal how much you're actually paying your factories to make your certain products? Um, and if we as consumers can do our research and find out is, are those wages actually um, realistically high enough for that local minimum wage, for that for the people living there to meet a living wage standard? Um, um, if not, then that's a high chance that they might be using unauthorized subcontracting to uh, get the products made for an even cheaper, cheaper price. Uh, we're in a detention center where detainees are essentially not paid at all for the products they make. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that 
ties back into the price that our companies are offering them and the price that we as consumers are willing to pay our companies to sell us these products. And those are factors that we can start controlling. Do we have, um, and you might have addressed this in the book, like watchdogs say within Washington that are looking to see what these companies are doing? And if so, how successful is that? Um, there's some groups here and there. Um, I know the campaign for Uyghurs is a good mm -hmm. one. The Uyghur Human Rights Project is a good one with some resources. Um, but it's, I don't think there's a, there's one like website I could point you to that lists all the factories um, that are good or all the companies that are good. I think we really need to kind of have a collective shift in how and pushing how our companies, what's the norm for doing business overseas. One of the ideas that Eric Fromm had in his book, To Have or To Be, which is part of where we take some of our content for the podcast, um, was consumer strikes. In his mind, it was necessary for us to change the way we're consuming, to consume in what, in a way that he called, um, be, called sane. He called it sane consumption. And so um, I'm wondering if you feel like, and what he said was that doing consumer strikes could help get us to a place where we could have sane consumption, where we could build a society where we were consuming in a sane manner, because right now we're not. It's just insane. It's overconsumption to the max. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on how consumer strikes could work to help with the situation or bring it into the situation, because I thought that was a really great idea. And I wonder if you think that that would be successful as well. Absolutely. Um, I think it can be successful, especially with uh, what you're saying with Gen Z, uh, this new generation that really cares about sustainability and ethical consumption and, and the environment. And um, and they're willing to put their money where their mouths are in a way that previous generations, including millennials like myself, may not always um, uh, have been quite on top of that it, it, you know the, this is a generation that's willing to pay higher prices that's willing to thrift more like that's just so much a part of their culture mm -hmm. um, and as this younger generation you know gets older and gets careers gets the careers going and have more purchasing power um, mm -hmm. a lot more companies will start paying attention to what they want and responding to that so I think there's definitely hope for consumer boycotts um, and one example of that historically is the um, the protests against Nike sweatshops in the 90s mm -hmm. um, right when we were first learning about that on the larger scale um, universities, across the US and even over the world uh, started boycotting Nike um, university students. And that's kind of a key part of Nike's customer base. That's you know, true. The young people, yeah. the cool kids, right? Mm -hmm. And have them have Nike be so uncool for that population was a problem for them. And maybe it didn't hurt Nike's bottom line in the long run, but it's sure these this kind of consumer-led protests scared them enough mm. that um, scared a lot of companies actually that they all started doing audits at that point 
they didn't even do audits at all before that. Wow. Unprecedented phenomenon for them. And so it was really a push in the right direction, a significant push in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But it didn't go far enough because a lot of the audits are very vague or companies don't even really show what they've got in their audit report a lot of the times. So we as consumers can definitely pick up that momentum again and push our companies to do better audits and to show more information about um, what they're doing to actually help their factories succeed in meeting the standards we say we care about, and what are we, what are our companies doing to actually um, deter their factories from using forced labor? These are things that we as consumers and a lot of our companies that we buy from can control. Yeah, I think the social media part is huge now in the era we're living in. Um, I was amazed. I learned a lot in reading the book about how, um, you know, historically how when we opened up the trade with China, while wow, that exploded, you know, that was huge. I also learned about the consumptive demand clause that actually is like a loophole to yeah. allow that labor, which was which was just recently, right, with uh, Sanders and a couple of right. other uh, legislators that they changed that. I mean, there's That's a lot of things I, I didn't even know. Right. Right. Uh, the consumptive demand clause didn't really change until 2016, as recently as yeah. Um, and what that was, that literally made it um, legal for goods made by prisoners and forced laborers even to, to sell in the U.S. Um, if the U.S. economy needed it, essentially. Um, <laughs> Just that, that was how problematic that was and how, how, how little most people knew about this little known clause. Um, and, um, but again, I think that is tied back to a consumer led movement uh, that, that created that change. Um, and back to your point about um, insane consumption. I love that term. And yeah. I just wanna highlight how insane it is. Um, uh, for example, in my book, I talk about Fashion Nova and, and the rise of these ultra fast fashion companies. They're way faster than fast fashion companies. Wow. Um, that's the new thing now. And um, the CEO of Fashion Nova has told the New York Times that he can turn something from a design to actual clothing, uh, physical clothing in his hands in less than 24 hours. Um, that's just how fast um, their production is um, because one, one reason for that is they don't have physical stores. It's all web-based. So that's one way they could shorten the time. But also I bet there's a lot of unethical reasons um, that I'll go into. How can you physically make products that fast? There has to be some, I'd imagine, uh, bad things that happen. Maybe even illegal subcontracting to, to really disturbing places that had to have happened. Um, and because companies like Fashion Nova are so successful, um, you know, they're able to get all these partnerships with big celebrities like Cardi B and the Kardashians, and they're just so popular. Um, it just, that model is pushing all of our other companies to shorten that time between production, between design um, and distribution of the product even more uh, to compete with brands like Fashion Nova. Um, and it's just, it's insane. It's insane. We're expecting our products to be made um, in less than 24 hours. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah. 
student. I, I just wanted to point out how to say that. No, that's awesome. I appreciate that because it's a it's a shout out to Fromm and he wrote this stuff in the 70s, man, 50s, 60s, <laughs> 70s. So he had a great vision to see what was happening and what was going to happen, you know, and I think it's really sad. I mean, this is a lot of what we talk about on the podcast too, but this is a very good example of us valuing things more than we value human beings. Why? Because Sun Yi is going to get abused in all kinds of ways and women sexually abused and abused in all kinds of ways. Why? So that you can have some shit. That's why. <laughs> so we can have shit really fast, basically. And there's nothing wrong with having things. We all need things to live. Mm -hmm. But there is a level at which it becomes insane, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Like, let's say... Um a company like H&M or Walmart, mm -hmm. they put in a production order for 10,000 black hats. But then all of a sudden, a celebrity in the U.S. starts wearing lime green. And now everybody wants to change that those black hats to lime green hats. Right. Um, a lot of times, our companies are not giving the factory enough time to make this dramatic change. And they're not waiving late penalty fines that are really high and debilitating for the factory if they miss a deadline. And so when things like that happen, um, these factories have no choice but to outsource work to some really disturbing places like labor camps. Um, and that still that all comes back to us and the way that we're shopping, the types of products that we're incessantly buying, the companies that we're rewarding. Uh, we're, a lot of us are rewarding companies that can offer the latest products for the cheapest prices. And that, unfortunately, that does create a lot of factors that leave factories on the other choice, other side of the world with no choice but to use forced labor. Right. You know, um, what really struck me, and I remember telling Lacey this, it just, it's still in my brain. I memorized the, um, the part about the landfills. You know, the Gen Zers, we care about the environment, about the landfill being the 20 soccer fields, I think 50 stories high, 25 years. Uh, it's filled earlier now. It's filled up with, you know, garbage. I'm like, wow, that's another really huge part of this. Yeah. Yeah. China's largest landfill um, is already full uh, much, yeah. much earlier than they expected it to be. Wow. Yeah, and we're all we are all a part of that. That's another thing is I realize, you know, I think people, Lacey and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, we're interdependent. It's not as if we're separate from the world. Right. And so what we obviously has an impact. And your book shows that. I mean, it's it's uh it's eye-opening. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm so glad you see that connection. Uh, you know, one thing that I thought was super interesting um, was that you mentioned in the book that when people are aware that this type of thing is happening and the products that they're looking at buying um, were, are being produced by forced labor, they tend to not want to buy the, the products. But what's more um, effective is how quickly, um, well, the timing of it. So if someone is at the store and they're looking at this and they're like, I want to buy this. And then they find out it like right before they're going to buy it, then that it's been made by forced labor. They're a lot more likely to decide not to make that purchase. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's this fascinating study about um, how consumers responded to counterfeit products uh, is studied um, 
the ethics of buying counterfeit products. So consumers were shown something that was incredibly cheap that they really wanted. And, you know, it sparked happiness in their, like dopamine mm -hmm. in their minds to, to see something that's such a discounted price. And then they were shown um, a note that explained why buying counterfeit products were um, unethical and who it harmed and that they were actively contributing to harming someone by buying this product. And, and the most of the time, the consumer in the study chose not to buy it, knowing if they could, you know, just, if it was just made clear that this product is associated with profound pain and yeah. if you could just make that connection at that moment mm -hmm. most people would choose to make the ethical decision most people are ethical mm -hmm. um but the the author of the study who i interviewed said unfortunately it's really a short time frame that that um those connections stay with us um maybe only half hour max uh, mm -hmm. before um they might be willing to buy the product again yeah uh, so that you know, our ability to, in our minds to hold information um, mm -hmm. is, is um, evolutionary. There's a reason for that. Like right. we, can't, we have to be able to focus on one thing and maybe the, for a lot of people, the most important thing to focus on when you're buying is the price and what, what you could, whether you could actually afford it and how much you love it. And then when you're focusing on those things, you, you cannot um, actually focus on everything you have learned about the different abuses that went into manufacturing products like this. Mm -hmm. um, but I do feel hope for change because that study was about counterfeit products, not um, products made in a labor camp. Um, so I think the level of horror that are associated with counterfeit products is, is definitely different from, from the stuff that we're talking about and my book talks about. And so maybe um, there's a certain threshold that crosses, like once we do all learn more information about what, as a society, once we learn more information about just the full extent of the conditions in these camps, the torturous conditions in these camps, the amount of sexual violence that takes place for these workers and the and all the people that die in these camps end up in, un, in unmarked graves before, mm -hmm. uh, just shortly after making our products. If, if we take the time to learn about it, then I think it's harder to forget after half an hour that's that's really true yeah yeah i was gonna say i was i was out yesterday shopping and uh saw some earrings that i was like these are cute and of course i flipped it over and was like where are these from <laughs> made in china and they were beaded and i was like all i could think of is this is probably somebody's fingers are just bleeding from putting the little beads on and i'm just like oh my god Oh, I just can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just heartbreaking to, to think that that's really happening. And, and for, you know, we call them, the phrase is political dissidents, but I think that's probably uh, real generous. You know, I mean, folks go to these camps because they don't explicitly agree with everything that the Chinese government says. I mean, it can be for something as little as that. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah. The, the one that I, the man that I focus on is pretty active political dissident, but a lot of these camps, uh, detainees, they're just people that sometimes they accidentally fall out of line with the government. They might've posted on something on social media. They might've downloaded an app they weren't supposed to download. 
Um, and, and, and what we're seeing with the rise of the detainees, the Uyghur and Tibetan detainees, is just because of their ethnicity, really. Mm -hmm. They haven't done any real anything wrong. Um, and these are the people manufacturing um, a lot of different goods for us. These Uyghur camps are learning they manufacture everything from the raw materials and solar panels um, to our PPE equipment uh, to baby pajamas. You know, it's just such a wide variety of products uh, that are, that anything could be manufactured in one of these camps. There's a story in the book that was interesting too about the gentleman, uh, the office supply store, the binder clips. What I found fascinating is he, I think it doesn't really have a big company, but probably middle size. And he notices the price goes down on the binder clips, but he actually has to travel to China and do his own research. And I think you said he was the only, I think, uh, person who ever got, uh, you know, was able to take them to court and get an award on this because I'm thinking it's gonna be really challenging for companies to even pursue uh, get, getting this information. Yes, uh, that was a fascinating case. Um, and it happened so long ago too, but it was the only case that actually led to a prosecution. Um, mm -hmm and the change um so there was this yeah like mid-size manufacturer of uh, binder clips um it's this american company that sold binder clips uh and they couldn't they suddenly couldn't compete because their competitor which also was supposed to be an american company um just started making manufacturing them for incredibly incredibly cheap prices and they actually have a similar factory in in, in the same region in china and knew that the local wages uh you cannot afford to pay the workers if you're offering that low of a price uh, for the binder clips and mm -hmm. so he decided to check it out um, well actually first he called the u.s government he called uh people in i believe it was customs and border patrol and those kinds of departments and and they all said, oh, yeah, we're aware that this happens, um, but we're not going to. He, he, the way that he actually testified in Congress about this. <laughs> so that's how I was able to, to write about it. But so according to transcriptions of, of the congressional hearing, he said he essentially he was under the impression the U.S. government was not going to do anything about it. And there was not much the U.S. government could do to help him. Mm -hmm. So he decided to go visit that supplier in China that he suspected was using prison labor to manufacture the binder clips. And, you know, it was a great risk for him to do that. He could have gotten into a lot of trouble for doing it, but he went there, he videotaped the trucks leaving the factory and going, and he even like managed to look inside the truck uh, before it left to see that um, when it was parked and <laughs> during a traffic stop uh, to see that the binder clips were not assembled and he uh -huh. saw the truck go to a women's detention center. Wow. Yeah, and then it was parked for there for a few hours and then it left and he, he and then he followed the truck and at the same traffic stop, <laughs> he looked in again and he filmed with his camera the binder clips were now assembled. Wow. Brought back to the manufacturer that the company in the US said they were sourcing from and that's how they were able to like lead to end in a prosecution and then to have that supplier stop uh, manufacturing products for the U.S. But it just took so much work on this one individual businessman to accomplish that. And I think most people are not willing to risk their lives to do that. Um, and we do need um, more help from the government side. Mm -hmm. Hmm.
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big risk to go and do what he did and, and also what you've done. I wonder um, if you've felt any fear around um, <clears throat> any consequences that you might have expected or might have not expected um, out of writing the book. Um, it's such an important story to tell. And I want to thank you for writing the book because it takes so much courage to speak out on these things. Um, and so I wonder for you, how has the experience been with releasing the book and writing it? And has it been any, have you been afraid at any point in time um, around, you know, just all the information that you're letting out? Thank you. Um, I've gotten a lot of attacks on social media from Chinese trolls. I think they're with the Chinese government, but they are um, pretty degrading things they say to me. Um, um, hopefully, I don't actually ever meet any of them in real life. Luckily, with um, all the virtual tours, I can't meet anyone. Otherwise, I wonder if I'm doing a bookstore event, they could show up and I could get attacked potentially. But um, but no, none of none of that has happened. So I think we're okay um, for the time being. Uh, but yeah, I actually did go to China to do reporting, and I was nervous when I was doing so. Um, yeah, so when I went to China to do reporting for this book, I uh, went to a detention center in a couple of detention centers in Shanghai. And um, one of them, it was supposed to be a drug detox center, um, but when you show up and you talk to the guards there, they call the people inside prisoners and they acknowledge, they openly acknowledge that the prisoners are doing manufacturing work. Um, I, I told them I was from an overseas company that wanted to buy products from them. And the guards were all like, okay, yes, absolutely. We can sell you things. Um, the prisoners here do all kinds of manufacturing work. And I spent a lot of time following the trucks that left these camps to exact, see exactly which exporters they're working with. And they were working with all kinds of exporters, um, including an official Apple factory. Wow. Um, and, um, and, you know, there was a pharmaceutical, there was a, a company that made pet products. Um, you know, they're just one labor camp can make so many different types of products, um, even if it's just the packaging that's involved, but it's still blood on that packaging, you know, and, and I just want to say, if I was able to find out that information, like actually pretty easily by just going to the camp and going to the factories uh, that are associated with that camp. And if I as an individual journalist can find that out, then companies with millions of dollars that dedicated towards their so-called audits can definitely find out more than what I was able to, if they were just willing to follow the trucks that left their suppliers to see exactly who they're working with, because it's not hidden. Um, if you walk around and you talk to the guards at these camps, they they will tell you a lot of information about what they make and who they're working with. Mm. Well, that's, that's an excellent point that um, you say these other companies, they have the resources to find out. and. It's, I think it's our responsibility to educate people as much as possible what's going on so that um, we, we as a consumer can have a voice um, because it's just horrific that like to Lacey's point that this consumption is killing human beings. That's basically what it boils down to. Yeah. 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 Like not just slowly, but just in places that are literally gulags, Chinese gulags. And, and I did learn, I didn't realize how repressed the Chinese society is. Um, that was very fascinating. And you also bring up, I think in 2022, about the facial recognition is coming on board. That's unbelievable. I mean, um, it's just going to change the way 
the world is, specifically China. Yes, um, especially in Xinjiang, they have this AI-enabled cameras that can just record everything and everyone in real time. And the artificial intelligence can flag whenever someone does something that looks suspicious to the government. And it could be something like, oh, this person didn't attend a nationalistic patriotic flag raising ceremony that they were supposed to attend. Um, we think that's problematic and the police are going to visit that person later. Um, wow. Maybe put them in a labor camp for that. Um, so it's just easier and easier to make a little mistake that and land in a labor camp. Do you think that the main uh, motivation behind the government for how strict they are about, you know, following what the government says is just so that they can imprison people for the sake of their economy? Do you think it's that's a, like one of the main motivators? I think economics definitely is a big part of it. Um, not all the camps are lucrative. Um, because they are run by the police and not necessarily by business people. Um, so, so a lot of them do have to rely on heavy subsidies from the Chinese government um, mm -hmm. because it's such a useful political tool for the Chinese government. Uh, but, 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 but the economics is definitely a strong factor. Um, for example, in Xinjiang, where there's millions of Uyghurs alone being detained in these camps, like just that's one population where millions of them are. And that's just one type of population in these camps, many different groups in these camps. And um, and in the Uyghur camps in Xinjiang, what we're seeing is the each time the camps expanded and um, and the crackdown on the Uyghurs um, worsened. It was actually tied to economic development in that region. Xinjiang, it's in northwestern China, um, so it's a huge uh, strategic trade route for China. You know, it connects China to Europe and even connects China to the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, China has invested a lot of money into developing that region as an economic. Um, it's a key part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is this trillion dollar economic right. plan that is too big to fail. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the other side to this economic development plan is that um, you, you are seeing a rise in camps and a heavier repression on Uyghurs. Do you have any idea of what the number of, of the population, what percentage of the population are in camps? Any ideas? I know that's a, that's a specific <laughs> question you may not know, but just curious. It's really hard to say because we don't have a full data set of how many people are actually detained in all these mm -hmm. different facilities. The Chinese government doesn't release it. We're kind of just, we just have bits and, Bits of data from different organizations and journalists that have managed to put things together, but we don't. I don't think we have a full picture, so it's really hard to say. I'm mean, some estimate as high as twenty percent, but it, um, I don't know if there's a dang. There's actually a data point that can give you. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I would say though, Lacey, based on what I was saying, this is economics driven. I mean, China wants to be the number one mm -hmm. economic power, and I can see that that where they're going with this. Yeah. It makes sense to me that that would be a huge motivator. Like we want to grow the economy. This is a way that we can get people to do free labor and grow our economy and become more powerful basically. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Xinjiang region where the Uyghurs live. So the Uyghurs have 
are people with darker skin. They're Turkic people who are not Han Chinese. And um, they historically have had a really hard time in China and years of oppression. So um, there's been some small scale protests in that region and the Chinese government is really nervous about um, any kind of protests that could potentially disrupt their trade in that region and the, all the different shipments that are going through that region. So that's another reason why a lot of Uyghurs have been disappearing into camps is to prevent them from participating in any kind of southern mm, That makes sense. Anything that is, is a threat to them or might become a threat to them, sounds like based on what I read in your book, they're shutting that shit down real fast. <laughs> yes. Yes. Before you can even organize something, um, they're shutting it down. Yeah. Un unlike what you saw in the eighties when you, you actually could still do some protests, like, but after that, um, 89 student led Tiananmen protests happened, they've been really quick to shut things down. And that's why you haven't seen anything really like it since. Right. And bringing it back around to the protagonist in your story, um, as I recall, they're trying to also make him accept the Chinese propaganda, right? There's the brainwashing aspect, not just you can't follow your path. You have to accept what we're telling you. Yes, absolutely. Um, all, even ethnic groups and not just political dissidents, uh, most people in these camps have to take patriotic classes where mm -hmm. they um, have to show their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. They, China, they love China. Um, they love Xi Jinping. They sing patriotic songs about mm -hmm. Xi Jinping. It's almost like North Korea. Like you, it's crazy that this is um, happening in China. You don't normally hear about it, but um, right. I, I I wasn't aware. And that book is like I said, your book's phenomenal. It's eye opening. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to write it? I'm curious. A long time. <laughs> Too long. <laughs> um, I started working on it in 2016, but. Yeah, it's some parts have been harder to write. There are definitely parts that I was like crying myself when I was editing it and rewriting it. Just it was some parts were just so hard to read about, yeah. um, read the transcripts um, and read the interviews. Mm -hmm. But no, yeah. I'm so glad that it's finally out and people have responded. People like you have responded so well to it. And yeah, really um, everyone yeah. to take action. Yeah, it's the take action. It really is motivating, I think, myself and Lacey to to speak out about this and to do what we can in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we we we're huge fans of the ideas <clears throat> behind decreasing consumption. And this is a is this is a blaringly obvious like, hey, guys, we, we got to chill out like this is really not helpful. Here's a, a good reason why one one good reason why. Um, and a strong one at that. I mean, there's basically people who are being enslaved and tortured and, you know, murdered is not as too strong of a word just so that we can have products quickly, cheaply, uh, easily. And I, I think we can take a second to step back and say, do we really need this this quickly? Do we really need this much of this? How much do we need? What do we need? And the pace of our society is not set up for us to take time to reflect and think about, do we, do we need this? Um, and so we're advocating for rethinking the way we do our lives, rethinking humanity. And so um, this is just perfect. I mean, just lockstep with 
kind of what we're saying on the podcast of why we need to rethink the way we're doing things. Yeah, and I love Amelia's point of really calling out these companies because they're not going away. I mean, they're powerhouses, right? And so we as the consumer have the power to say, ask them, you know, how are these products being manufactured? Putting things on social media, uh, like your point, Lacey, strikes. They yeah. don't want to lose their bottom line. They don't want to lose their customers. So I think we have that power to, to influence what their, you know, their decision making. Absolutely. Yeah, I know we've talked about some really horrific details <laughs> in the last hour, but I just want to end on a hope of change, a ho hopeful note, because my book ultimately is about um, things we can do to be educated about it. Um, things we can do to act, small actionable steps that we can all take to um, rethink consumption and rethink humanity. Mm. Yes. Okay. Well, it has been such a pleasure to have yeah. you, Amelia. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. We We're just so grateful. Yeah, Thank this is so amazing. Much. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, best You're of, awesome. Yeah, best we of luck. All meet in, the in person one day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. That would be great. We 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 did some more research about you and some really neat uh, stuff you've done journalistic work on that we like. Thank so, you. Yeah, maybe yeah. we'll have you on again at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. And thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll see you on, on the next episode of Rethinking Humanity.